to the final lecture in this year's Translation of History uh, series. Uh, these lectures are organized by Dr. Geraldine Brody here, um, Dr. Dorosa Golush from Cardiff University, um, and myself, with the support of the Faculty Institute of Graduate Studies. Um, tonight we are going to continue and close our exploration of um, translation in non-Western traditions with a lecture on uh, translation in um, the translation of the state by Professor Stephen Hart. Um, Stephen Hart is Professor of Latin American Literature, Film and Culture and Head of the Department of Spanish and Latin American Studies here at UCL. He holds a PhD degree um, from Cambridge University and has published several monographs including a literary biography of Gabriel Garcia Manches. He's general editor of the academic English Tamesis, I'm not sure how, yeah, yes, um, and founder director of the Center of Cesar Valenco uh, Studies. He's also the director of the documentary film making project, um, which runs an annual summer school in Cuba, um, and director of the, of the Festival of the Moving Image. He has himself co-directed several short documentary films and um, docudramas. But tonight he's here to uh, talk about translation, um, and more specifically the translation of the saints, subtitles have the Lima. Please welcome Professor Hart. Uh, thanks very much, Sylvia and uh, Geraldine, for inviting me along to the, uh, today, and also thanks very much for all of you coming along, as well, especially to uh, the Anglo Peruvian Society, where I first discussed. Uh, this, the issue of Santa Rosa de Lima. I'm going to talk today about the notion of lost in translation. And so I'll start off, um, hopefully it will work. Okay, the normal meaning of lost in translation. So we normally think of that of expressions in a language which is unique to a particular language. And I don't know if any of you can guess from here what this word is going to be. Not yet. Okay, it's the Gaelic word Skriol. I don't know how to pronounce that, but it may well be that Theo will know that, uh, Professor Hearn will know how to pronounce that. Okay, well what does it mean? It's translated as the itchiness that overcomes the upper lip just before taking a sip of whiskey. <laughs> now if you don't like whiskey, then you would never have experienced that. But it's an interesting, just one word. Okay, we'll carry on a little bit. A southern Chile word. Um, mama la pitane pai. Anyone know what that is? Okay, okay, it's the Jürgen word, a look between two people suggesting an unspoken desire. Okay, carry on a little bit more. A German word, you know this one, Waldeinsamkeit, translated as the feeling of being alone in the woods. Okay, and this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, the French word, l'esprit de l'escalier, translated literally as staircase wit. That doesn't mean anything but actually suggests the act of thinking of a clever comeback when it's too late to deliver it. <laughs> and there are so many times that we've had that experience, haven't we? So, um, in some ways, these, these are things that have been translated, but they're just um, uh, part of a particular um, work. So that was just to kind of warm things up, because what I want to do, talk about today is the translational act and also the corpus. I want to talk about that in terms of the process of beatification, I be i.e. whereby the Vatican declares an individual um, to be blessed, and also canonization, 
whereby the Vatican declares that individual to be a saint. And the saint that I want to talk about is <coughs> Santa Rosa de Lima, 1586-1617. We can see a picture here of her in the middle. And this is here is just Apostle de los Deseos, where in the, the sanctuary, which is in Lima, where lots of people go, and I've been there, and many of you might even send a letter to Santa, Santa Rosa, but you said you drop your um, message down in that well, and the rather beautiful church there is right is built right next to the house that she used to live in. She's significant for a variety of reasons. Um, she is the first saint of the Americas, including of course Peru and also of the Philippines. It was then still part of the Spanish em Empire, and also a clutch of churches as well in other countries such as Chile, Argentina. She's revered in parts of the Netherlands in the 17th century. She is said to have saved them from the plague, and also India. I'm interested in three types of translation. I'm slightly worried by the experts about translation in the, in the audience who will say that's not a technical use of the word translation. I want to talk about the translation of her material body into a holy relic. I want to also talk about, number two, the material translation of the Spanish depositions of the beatification process into Latin. I'll talk a little bit about that as well. And also the processes under, underlying the narrativization and Latinization of Rosa's life as evident in the first canonic biography, which is the Vita Mirabilis et Mors Pretiosa. So what that meant, meant was the miraculous life and the precious death of this individual that was published in 1664. I say reputedly authored by one Leonardus Hansen, I'll talk about that. There are three things that have been lost in translation. One of them is a toe, one of them is, the other one is three depositions and a corpse. So just remember those three things, I'm going to talk a little bit about how they relate to Santa Rosa de Lima. Santa Rosa is famous for a number of things, I'm not going to go into too many of them, being attacked by the devil. You can see the devil over there, on, just on this part, just over here, there's poor Santa Rosa on the floor, there are lots of pictures of um, uh, this, this sort of thing that happens to saints, it's part of the idea. She was also, as well, um, famous for her visions of Christ, as you might imagine, with an, uh, a nun that became a saint. Um, she was interviewed by the Inquisition. I just want to mention one thing, uh, one of the individuals, I think it's this individual, I can't quite work out why she went along with Santa Rosa to see the Inquisition dressed in red. I don't know what you think about red. I think red is a very full colour, but I think that there would be something... Would, anyway, it's, it's a possibility that that individual is someone called Luisa Melgarejo. I'll talk a little bit more about her later on. The other picture is just of the... Uh, in place where she lived. So I'll move on um, to the next part. Um, her views were found to be orthodox when she had that. She had 11 different confessors. Okay, her precious death. A few things about that. Um, the pains that she was said to experience by her doctor when she died on the 24th of August 1617 were seen as preternatural. On the night of her death, her friend, Doña Luisa Melgarejo, experienced a very long religious ecstasy. It went on for three and a half hours. The word in Spanish is arrobo. Arrobo is quite a difficult word to translate. It's related to the word robar. It means to be, as it were, stolen from the 
the place where you find yourself. It means a trance or religious ecstasy. She said that she saw Rosa being welcomed into, into paradise. As a result of what she said at that point in time, the Inquisition said, that's it, you are now on trial. And she was trialed later on as a result of what she said. The other picture is of um, uh, by Angelino Medoro, who painted Rosa au Naturel, just after her death. And the other picture there is just a hordes of people who came to see her. This is probably a romantic version of it. The, what essentially happened is they tried to rip all of her clothes off. Um, they tried to get a relic. And this is one of the reasons why um, uh, the, uh, the, the first part of what I'm going to talk about. They also used the word, which is tratables. Now, those of you who know Spanish will know they say this is the, 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 the thing that was unusual about uh, Santa Rosa. That when they touched her hands, they said they were tratables, which is that they felt natural or they felt warm or they felt living or it's difficult to translate it, but they felt tratables. Um, and also, as well, it mentions that what they did is they started thinking, wow, she's not got any rigor mortis. Isn't that funny? So they started playing with her body and they got her arms and moved her arms around and legs around. So obviously things were um, uh, uh, quite a bit of pandemonium there. As a result of that, um, the archbishop said, no, I had enough of this. We're going to take her out of, the, um, uh, out of the public domain. And one thing happened that then changed things is about the canonization was that one individual called Isabel Duran, uh, whose arm apparently had not worked, so this very typical kind of story, her arm had not worked for 15 years, so she went up and she touched the body, and then she said that she felt all the blood moving back into her arm, and then she said she could move it around, so she started shouting. And the only trouble with that, of course, was that everyone in the audience thought, wow, I want a bit of that. So they all started grabbing hold of the body. Um, and it then, at that point, the archbishop said, no, we, you know, we, we can't even keep it here. We're going to take it out and put her somewhere else because um, of what's going to happen. Now, when that night, <coughs> one of the novitiates, um, and I need to admit this, I didn't know what he bit off. In the words, you know, the word in Spanish for uh, dedo can mean a, it's a digit, isn't it? And it can mean a finger or it can mean a toe. So for, for about six months, I thought, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. Couldn't have bitten a toe off. How would you bite a toe off? Um, but he did. It was a toe. It wasn't a finger. So, and I, there's no information about why he did this. Um, in other words, uh, one of the novitiates decided, it could have been that he was overcome and decided to, uh, because of the, um, his love of, 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 uh, of Santa Rosa, and uh, bit her toe off. Um, but it could have been that he actually did this in a calculated way because he, he knew this would be a good way to get a relic. He did not admit that he did it, but one of his friends uh, got his own back on him by saying, I asked him to, for half of that toe and he wouldn't give it to me, so I'm telling you just how awful he is. So it's a, now it's a different kind of era that one's living in. Um, that was the first part of her body that became... Uh, that, that became uh, saintly, as it were. So I'm going to move on a little bit more. Um, the beatification processus. These proceedings were begun almost immediately on the 1st of September, 1617. Um, there were 75 witnesses. Uh, they were called in by the Archbishop and they gave their information about Santa Rosa. There were 78 depositions because three witnesses um, 
uh, were asked to give their deposition, uh, two depositions. That original manuscript of the beatification papers is held to this day in the Monasterio de Santa Rosa de Santa Maria in Lima. <coughs> a new copy was written out by hand to be forwarded to Spain, and it was called a traslado. The word traslado can mean lots of different things. It can mean a translation, um, normally as a traslado, or it can mean a transferal, or it can be, as I think it probably means here, a fair copy which was made. Um, the full title of the document is Tresado Autentico de las Informaciones de la Vida, Santidad, Muerte y Milagros de la Bendita Rosa de Santa Maria Natural de la Ciudad de Lima. It carries on, they, they liked the, those long titles at that point. It consists of 338 folios, it was signed and authenticated by the Archbishop, and it was said to be a, a copy um, of, the, uh, of the original, which is held in Lima. That manuscript is in the Vatican, and it looks a bit like this. Okay, traslado autentico de las informaciones, just to show you, that's in the uh, Archivo Congreso, the Ritum, Processus 1570. Now, I just want to talk about one thing about that translation into Latin. All cases related to, relating to beatification had to be translated into Latin, and this manuscript was no exception. So the translation was designed specifically for presentation at the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office, which was a non-public confidential meeting. So it's decided on the issues of Rose's beatification. So just to think in general about the notion of translation that happened in that particular case, it just struck me that there are things which are different about that type of translation. So unlike, a, if we can call it, a centrifugal trans translation of a work, which is designed to popularize the work and make it available to other language-speaking uh, publics, this translation was actually designed, and I'm going to call it for an inner chamber. In other words, it wasn't you know, done for public release. It wasn't done in those, in the way that we might think about, say, a novelist who might, a Peruvian novelist who might want his works to be translated into a number of languages. That was not the idea with regard to that. This translation was for an internal committee in the Vatican. It's perhaps, and the reason I say this is because when students ask me, well, can you tell me a bit more about that translation? Why would one want to do that? I think it's just comparable to a technical translation of a work which is designed to popularize the, the uh, sorry, a document within the branches of an organization which speak different languages, perhaps like the EU. So in other words, it's kind of an internal um, uh, document in those terms, although into Latin. And the third thing about the Latin, and this, there's been much written about this, and uh, this is just a summary really of, of many of the points that have made, that translatio into Latin is an intrinsic component of the process of spiritual elevation given the association between Latin and the Catholic Church. So that's just one part of the, the Latinization and the narrativization which occurred um, at that particular time. That is not to say, of course, that I would be arguing, or anyone would argue, that the translation into any of the Romance languages is in itself um, uh, suggests the opposite, in other words, spiritual degradation. That's not what this is suggesting here. It's just that there is that association. Now, curiously enough, I looked at the documents in the Vatican, and with regard to those that arrived in 1618, 16, uh, in fact, arrived in 1619, those documents, which were translated into Latin, were different from the documents that arrived later on with canonization, and for some reason they were translated in bits of it that were left in Spanish, 
bits of it were translated into Latin, and bits of it, I don't know why, were translated into Italian. So it's a kind of a mix, the whole thing's a mix, but it was um, uh, just a rather different from this um, uh, translation early on. Now, in terms of the uh, producing a Latin version of the text, this, was, this task was uh, completed on the 16th of April, 1619, which produced a new 463 folio text, Italian-Latin, called Informatio Judica Anti Anti Episcopum Civitatis Regum in Indies Occidentitalibus, etc., etc., and that's in the Vatican as well. Um, one of the things that struck me when I started on this project was that when I went to Lima, uh, most of the people said to me, well, of course, we have everything in Lima, we have it in Peru because she is our saint. She is um, Santa Rosa de Lima. Um, but what I found, uh, curiously enough, is that actually there's, um, I suppose it's almost obvious in some ways, they do have different documents in Lima that they have in the Vatican, um, but they do have a lot more of the actual works which were sent. And they have the two original texts, and there is a problem, and I just wanted to mention that, which is that the um, original text of the beatification is falling to pieces. It is um, kind of a, the, the oxidization of all of the um, of, I would I calculate that 30% of the pages has actually reduced them to a kind of a sort of a crepe-like pulp so that they, they've been fallen to pieces and in some ways it's rather urgent that those, uh, they, they should be saved um, uh, because it's a very important document the beatification is fine the canonization has some problems the copy however in the Vatican is okay but there are things about that original which um, uh, alarmed me when I, uh, when I saw it in last summer. But this text is also um, in, um, uh, in the Vatican, and so it was presented to some translators. Um, and the translators, I think this happened in Spain, they were not professional translators. So in the 1620s, 1660s, 1630s, they were Dominicans, and they um, were charged with what I would call a scribal, professional, theological assignment in which translation was a component of the overall task. So they weren't, as it were, translators as one might, um, uh, one might think of it nowadays. This might seem obvious to uh, many of you, but I just wanted to emphasize that particular point. And there's the actual text itself, which has not really been referred to in much of the... Um, a criticism on Santa Rosa. Most of the criticism on Santa Rosa has really talked about these two uh, Latin texts, one of which, as I said, is 30% falling to pieces, and not talked really much about this. And I think this is really, uh, most of the story is in the Vatican. The reason why I think this is quite important is that both of the individuals, Agustin de Vega and Francisco de Figueroa, stated that the text was a true translation. Ego Frater Franciscus de Figaro Predicator Generalis in Notarius. I don't need to read all of it, but they basically say it's a verum testimonium. Qualiter hocus unum transmutum bene ad fidelite extractum et sua originale. So in other words, it's a, it's a faithful translation. Well, I, I obviously had no reason to doubt that at all, um, but what I did is, and that's just that what, what they wrote, you know, just, uh, just so that you can see that I'm not making this up, um, <laughs> not that you would have any reason for me to make up Latin, but anyway, I just thought I'd show you that. Um, uh, I can't publish that, by the way, because the Vatican will charge me 103 euros to do that. So I think I'll be hanging on to it as private study 
for a while, I think. Um, this, I uh, put traditore, traditore, it wasn't actually true. Um, I, I, I was a bit bemused by this, and I just one of those sort of boring things one does. I just looked through all of the um, uh, testimonies just to see that there was a translation of all of them, and if I could get a sense of what they were translating, these sorts of ideas I could get from that. Um, but it wasn't an exact translation of the parts they translated. But the testimonies of three individuals did not make it through. And those three individuals were one, Luisa Melgarejo. Luisa Melgarejo is very important because Luisa Melgarejo was accused of being an alumbrada. An alumbrada is an enlightened person. He is an enlightened person who has visions, who is a mystic, but is not recognized by the church. And that was very, very important, in, of course, in uh, post-Tridentine Spain, when not recognizing the authority of the church was not a good idea as far as the Spanish Inquisition uh, was concerned. Her friend as well, Josefa de Guzman, was, her testimony was also taken out. Now, that's fine if a translator does that, says, I'm taking these three out because I don't think they're appropriate, and you just give an excuse, or a reason, or a pretext, or something. Nothing is mentioned. Simply, the, uh, the translation goes through, and those three are taken out. Now, the other one, which I think is quite unusual, and I, I was quite surprised by this, because I, I must admit, I was half expecting that something would happen with Luisa Menegarejo. And the reason why I thought that is because she was trialed by the Inquisition in 1624. And the only reason that she was able to escape was because of her, her high social rank. Her friends, who were not of a high social rank, were whipped in public. And she, however, was not whipped in public because her husband was the rector of the Universidad de San Marcos. And that was the reason why this didn't happen to her. But she was seen as suspicious. The main reason why she was seen as suspicious was because, as I mentioned before, they didn't mind the visions, they didn't like the ecstasy. They didn't like the alegría. The mention of alegría was seen as, uh, as, as um, an element which suggested that uh, she was not... Um, uh, that, that she, was, she was not a true Christian, that's what they said. Um, her friend, Giuseppe de Guzman, was also in Santa Rosa's inner circle, and her deposition was also taken out. Gaspar Flores is an unusual one. It was her father. Um, and I was quite taken aback by this, because I thought, that's very funny, that's almost an insult, to take the father's deposition out of the record without even telling the father, because there's no references whatsoever to this in, uh, in, in Peru, or, or, or there's no, and in fact, they would not have known. They would not have known, because they wouldn't have read Latin, and anyway, it was a long way over there, in, in Rome, where they, all this was happening. So there's no reason why they would have known that. The, what I think, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the question, I just want to say a last thing here, um, technically, of course, translation always leaves open to the translate the option of making editorial changes. It makes you think about what an editorial change is. If not signalled, they're unlikely to be noticed by its readership. I don't know how many of us sometimes read a translation of a work and don't check it with the original, so we don't know what's been changed. But we trust the translator. In this particular case, there were other political things that were happening. Why Gaspar Flores? Well, I think politics first and religion second. It's known that on the 20th of April, 1618, Gaspar Flores had written personally to the king 
Philip III. The only reason I say this is important because it was a letter at about the same time when they would have been receiving this, um, uh, going through this work. Complaining about his economic circumstances despite the fact that he had dedicated his life to Spain and furthermore that he had produced a daughter who had produced many miracles for Spain and in his letter he describes his daughter as la primera flor, the first flower, con cuyas virtudes y santidad ha querido nuestro Señor engrandecer al Perú, that the Lord has wished to noble, ennoble Peru. So, the next part is, and, are you going to help me out? Okay? Which I think is a, is, is a human reaction. It's a human thing, isn't it? So, right, there are lots of, I mean, kings... And always received lots of letters from their subjects asking them. But I think this didn't go down well. This did not go to go down well, I believe. And I just proposed this as a possibility. That I think the dates are too close for this. There are there's other bits of evidence that I have, I'm not going to go into it, but there's other bits of evidence where his relationship was probably fractious with the Viceroy. He was According to most versions of this, which I do not think is the case, he was offered a post in um, Kivis. Uh, I don't think he was. I think he was banished. Um, and that he took his family there um, and that there was some friction because of some other letters that I've read. So I would say that his gesture was interpreted negatively as a brash attempt to use his daughter's sanctity to further, further, uh, feather his own nest. Um, the other one I think is very clear why did Luisa Melgarejo and Giuseppe de Guzman uh, why, why were they taken out because at that point in time the Inquisition which at that point in time you could almost imagine knew everything or could be seen as knowing a lot um, they had already got their eye on Luisa Melgarejo she was already actually at that point in time and Santa Rosa uh, uh, when she wasn't a saint, but when she was still alive, um, did actually say to her friends that she thought that Luisa Melgarejo could also be a saint, um, that she was very saintly. Um, this was, uh, as it were, uh, something which emerged later. Not that Luisa Melgarejo said that in her uh, testimony. It was uh, her ecstasy that she experienced for 3.5 hours immediately after Rosa's death was not referred to her on one single occasion in any of her depositions. Not one single occasion did she do that. The uh, reference to the ecstasy that she experienced was talked about by Gaspar, by um, Gonzalo de la, de la Massa, who was an accountant and who, in whose house uh, Santa Rosa lived for the last five years of her life. And he did that because he was above the law and could not be attacked by the Inquisition, but she could. So that was one of the reasons why that was taken out. And so I think in this particular case, she was um, trialed, and they already knew about that, so they removed it um, from uh, the Inquisition. So that just really is the three uh, depositions. In some ways it's a small detail, um, but I think in other ways it's a very important detail to show the vying and the the kind of politicking that was happening even up while translation is going on. In other words, we might think of translation being a noble task in which one is furthering uh, the light of the world. That's not the way that this was happening. There were politics enmeshed in this whole pro uh, process of translation.
She was accused, as I said, as I mentioned there, by the Inquisition in 1622, um, uh, a group of being a member of the Alumbradas, um, which is the uh, uh, the enlightened ones. It's again difficult to translate that particular word. Um, and it's normally in English people just say the Alumbradas because it refers to a group of women who had mystical experiences and who saw themselves. This was, there were two reasons why the Inquisition didn't like them. The first reason is because they had ecstasy, and uh, not too about the drug. And the second one, the second reason um, is because they um, did not. They regarded themselves as without sin. In some of the, in, some, in many of the uh, Inquisition documents that I've read, that was a question that came up very quickly. Do you regard yourself as without sin? Because if they said that, that was it. They, they didn't need to go any further. Because only one can see, obviously, the, the, the politics of this, or let's say the religious uh, notion of this. That meant that they did not need to go to church. They did not need Catholicism. They did not need the Inquisition. They did not need the Pope. They needed none of these, these things because they already regarded themselves as, as, as without sin. So that was why they were um, outlawed. So just a couple of um, pretty basic uh, observations so far. Um, so it's important when looking at the translation between the countries of Spanish colonies, the mother country Spain, the relationship both to Italy, between the languages Spanish and Latin, um, as well as Italian, seeing that the culture of the Dominicans compared with the culture of the Inquisition, Inquisition to see it at the mercy, like any other manifestation of Roman culture, of political tensions. We also need to look carefully at the words used, the word traslado in the title of the Spanish text, and the word transmutum in the statement in the Latin text, also indicate how slippery the relationship between these different entities was in the uh, 17th century. Um, the, 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 the word uh, traslación, like um, uh, we might think translation, of course the word in Spanish is traducción, but the word traslación is used in the documents that I've been looking at, and it simply is used for transfer, and it's used for the transfer of Rosa's body to a new grave in 1619. So, um, <coughs> little interlude on gained in translation, um, just something that, um, uh, to, to come back to this basic point um, that I was mentioning before about the importance of saving that document which is in the Archivo Arzobispal in, uh, in Lima. Um, there are, just as there are times when the editor, translator, writer, they can't really be split up at all at this period in time, can suppress information, there are also times when the opposite occurs. The editor, translator, writer can also add information as per his or her role a privileged negotiator between cultures. This idea draws in some recent research which sees the translator as no longer mute or invisible, but an individual who possesses a recognizable voice and role in cultural translations. And I'm referring um, to the translator as mediator of cultures, edited by Humphrey Tompkin and Maria, Maria Esposito Frank. There are lots of other works on this as well. That's just one that I'm referring to. Um, and the cultural negotiation that I want to refer to briefly now occurred in the apostolic processes. The apostolic processes was 1630 to 1632. That was the big one. Okay? That was the one in which you could become a saint. Now that took place, as I've mentioned before, 1630, 1632. The documents um, uh, seen... Um, those documents of which there's a copy in Lima, 
as well as in uh, the Vatican, those documents contain a document which is said to be the first biography of Santa Rosa de Lima written by someone called Pedro de Loasa in 1619, according entitled La Vida, Muerte y Milagros, so life, death and miracles of Sister Rosa de Santa Maria. Teodoro Ampe Martinez uh, quotes it, Ramon Mujica Penilla does not question it, the, the authorship of that document. However, there's a problem. And the reason why there's a problem is if you compare the two texts, you realize there's a problem. If you're in Lima, you look at the text, you won't see a problem. If you're in the Vatican, you look at it, you won't see a problem. You put the two things together and you realize what was sent and what was received, you see there's a problem. And here's the problem. The first thing is, which I'd realized before I looked for this, is there is no independent evidence that a publication with this title appeared in 1619. There is no book. I have not been able to find that book. In fact, I'd love to find it, but um, actually it doesn't exist. The evidence related to this text is, as I mentioned before, in the apostolic processes. Um, uh, there's no evidence of this having occurred in the work which was being written at the time that apparently this other text was being written in 1619. But the most important bit of evidence is that if you compare what was written in Lima with what was actually received in the Vatican, you find that the same 29-chapter biography is in there, but there are um, a number, in fact, 13 folios of new explanatory material in the later manuscript, which is not in the original copy. And it doesn't say something like, we added this just so that you'd understand you know, what this original document had. Um, it gives, and I'm just going to go through this briefly, um, it has a letter about the text, which is the 29-chapter biography. It also, and I've put here as E, it also says that Pedro Loasa is someone who commissioned the text, so therefore he cannot have written it. This has been said for years, you know, but he did not write it. He commissioned the text. If he did that, quite apart from that, it says that the person who wrote it was someone called Fray Nicolás de Aguero, a Dominican, who wrote the account dispatched it to a number of churches throughout Peru, but died before he was able to sign it, at which point it was signed by two of his colleagues as an authentic account, Fray Cosme de Abaramburo, Francisco Calcasa, on the 1st of September 1617, then signed on the 2nd of June 1624 by Bernardo de Gamara, on, um, as I said, on the 2nd of June 1624, before arriving on the desk of the apostolic judges in late 1631. And this is just the, just to show um, uh, the, the, the comment itself, uh, just an example. Certifico yo, Fray Bernardo de Gamara, notario de las causas, uh, just certifying this is where the text came from. So just to say I didn't make it up, it's in there. Okay, now I just want to ask, is this possible? I just ask him that, I don't know what you think. Um, now of course everyone dies, and everyone, uh, you know, it's quite possible that people write things just before they die. Um, but I just really want to ask a question about that, whether it's possible for a priest who is dying would then take the time to dispatch copies of the recently written biography of Santa Rosa to all the contents of the province of Peru. That's quite difficult to do, if you think. Imagine you're on your deathbed and you suddenly think, I've just written that thing, I'm going to send it out to all these uh, places. Now, not only would you do that, you would then advise the, con the convents of Rosa's demise 
especially since she died some years before. And then why did the notary give a different version of the name Nicolas to the procurator, Nicolus, which I don't think it really is a word, is it? Nicolus? Uh, how many people are called Nicolus? Um, uh, but Nicolas, why is there no independent evidence of the existence of such an individual, nor any mention of his actions in the apostolic processes? Why did these names just suddenly appear? Why is there no reference to them? One would think that they would have been part of the process, that they would give evidence. And then why is there no document signed by him? He was able to dispatch uh, the, all of these versions to around Peru, uh, of which there's no copy, it might be said, and only the documents which were signed on his behalf by his companions. Uh, one hypothesis, based on internal evidence of the first biography and some circumstantial factors, is that the author of the first biography Vida, Muerte y Milagros de Soror Rosa de Santa Maria was an individual whose name could not be publicly attached to the text because the association of that individual with the text would lead to a reduced viability of Rosa's case when it came before the Vatican Tribunal. That, I, I'm still researching this. I've proved that it isn't what people have said so far and I'm now looking at the reasons why they might have made up this cock and bull story. It is a cock and bull story with cock and bull people in it, um, with cock and bull signatures next to it, excuse my language. Um, so I've discovered that that is the case because I've looked at the original and looked at what then arrived, and I just suggest that there is the possibility that um, it might have been someone else and it might have been her inner circle. But I can't prove that. Um, uh, the, the, well, I, I, I think I might be able to, but I'm not going to go into that now. Um, the third one, okay, is the corpse. Okay, um, where is Leonardo Hansen's corpse? A bit of a funny question, I suppose, to ask, really. And I'm sure it doesn't keep you awake at night, um, as it did me, um, I hate to admit, for a while. It has been taken for granted for the last 350 years that the author of the third biography, not this first one that I'm talking about in 1619, but the one that came out in 1664, that that was written by a man in 1664 called Leonardo Hansen. It's a beautifully crafted piece of work, written in Latin, as I mentioned before, which provides a canonic and skillfully cadenced narrative of the main events of Santa Rosa's life. It was translated pretty quickly into Spanish, French, Portuguese, German, Dutch, Italian and English. Leonardo Hansen is described in the secondary material as a German Dominican. It's been accepted for, uh, for many years, and there didn't really seem to be much reason to uh, doubt that he was a German Dominican. He's got a very, sort of, um, I suppose, uh, a Latinized version of a very German type of name. Um, but I couldn't find any independent evidence of this particular individual. And I could only find one thing, which took me quite a long time, of a text, it's, it's actually, curiously enough, isn't it so annoying, it's actually in the British Library. And they've been looking for it in the Vatican and looking uh, for it in Lima. But it's there, but it's written in Latin, and it's two volumes, and you can go and look at it. Um, and it's on the Scriptoris Ordinis Predicatorum Recensisti, and it's the, it's the first edition, not the second edition. I can talk about that in, in a second. But it's the first edition. And it's on volume two, page six. 92, and this is what it says about him. I'm not going to read all of it, but it basically says that 
he when he it says when he was uh, he was born in the the colonies. Um, he was in Vienna. He 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 was teaching publicly in Vienna, and it gives some dates with regard to that. It also says uh, a few other things as well. It says right at the end that he uh, wrote the work itself that with the, his Vita Mirabilis Motto Mos Pretiosa, and it says um, that he is buried in the Santa Maria Super Minerva Church in Rome. It says he's buried there. Okay, so I thought that's it. I've, wonderful. There I've been worried about this man all this time and of course now I've got the information that he publicly gave lectures in Vienna so I just need to find that out and I'll find that quickly and I just need to go to Rome and there I'll find his body. It'll be in there and then I won't need to worry anymore about this man um, and not finding any independent evidence with regard to him. But then I wrote to the, uh, some Dominicans in uh, Germany and also in Vienna and they very kindly, a very German efficiency, Austrian efficiency, got back to me and said that there was no reference to uh, a person called Leonardus Hansen or Leonardo Hansen or whatever. And they gave me a list of 178 Austrian Dominican who lived during the period 1309 to 1863. Um, I also checked in a book, I've got it in the library as well, the British Library, 1867 book, um, looked it up. And there's lots of information it gives about Santa Rosa. It gives lots of information about lots of individuals, but there is not one single reference to Leonardo's Hansen. So that's slightly worrying. Okay, slightly worrying. So I thought it doesn't matter. They just forgot him. Um, and what I'll do is I'll go to Rome and I'll find his body. So uh, because it says there, Deo redidit animam, and it says in Santa Maria Super Minervum sepultus. It says sepultus. I thought, well, you know, what? What? He, he, he can't have gone anywhere. Um, he's got to be there. So I went to the church. I thought his body's not there. There is a chapel dedicated to Santa Rosa. So I thought, of course, that would be the place. Santa Rosa would be because he'd written on Santa Rosa, so it would make sense. But no. There is a body in there, but it belongs to Isabella Alvarez de Toledo. That's just a picture of the, the church, um, uh, which unfortunately I went in and, and hoping to find the body, didn't find it. Um, but it's, of course, it's quite possible that he's buried somewhere else. Um, and uh, you know, the, the, but, but, it's, but, but let me tell you why I think he's not buried there, and let me tell you why I think he doesn't exist. This is why I think he doesn't exist, because there's a third problem which is actually a kind of a little trick. Um, because Leonardus Hansen is described as an English provincial on the frontispiece of the 1664 edition. In fact, you pointed that out yourself. Um, I don't even remember the, 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 uh, when we had this comment before. And you did point that out, which was, I think was a very interesting point, because it did say that. It did say, Leonardus Hansen, Magister Provincialem Angliae and Sotium Referendissime. Um, Magister General Ordine Praeticatorum. So it did say that. Um, but most people have ignored that because he had such a German-sounding name um, and said he obviously was a German Dominican. But it did say there, it does actually say that, that he's an English, Dimi uh, English um, provincial. And just to... I'm not making it up. There it is. <laughs> okay, so that's the 1664, and I've checked the 1668, and I've also checked uh, 1680 as well as the 1725, and it just says the same thing, that he's an English provincial. So it's odd. So then, of course, I thought, well, that's it. It's, it's clear, isn't it? I just need to check all of the English 
um, uh, English Dominicans, and I, I went to uh, in Berkshire. The um, I went to uh, um, the Cathedral of Douai, the, um, the monastery there, and looked through the information there. And um, unfortunately, he's not there. So, um, so therefore, I think one needs to interpret that Leonidas Hansen as a pseudonym designed to protect the real author of the book. And the only person who could be described as precisely that, without the name, in other words, the um, Magister Provincialum Anglia Socium Referendissima, in 1664, the only person in England who could be called that, according to all the references that I found in the 17th century to an English provincial, was an Englishman who was actually of Spanish extraction called Vicente Torres, who lived from 1631 to 1687. And there are a number of histories of the Dominicans in the country, and they do refer to this individual as being the person who was called the English provincial. There is other evidence to support this supposition. It is a supposition. The only way I could find this out is if I went into his tomb and got it out. No, I, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> as Raymond Palmer uh, says, Vincent Torre was commonly called provincial of the Dominicans in England at that time, in the 17th century. The very Reverend F. Vincent Torre, provincial, was of Spanish origin. He was said to be a member of the ancient family of the same name which had originally moved from Spain to Warwickshire and then in the 15th century had moved to Lincolnshire, his family, not him, was fluent in Spanish and would have been able to read the beatification and canonization documents with ease. So he would have been able to read those in Spanish as much as the Latin ones as well. Um, he was in Rome as well in the three few years just before the biography was published in 1664. On the 10th of October 1658, he took up a teaching position there and he was a lector in philosophy and theology at Viterbo. Vincent Torri had good reason, this is the other thing as well, why does one hide one's identity? Why hide your identity? He had good reason to hide his Catholic identity. He was accused in 1678 by Titus Oakes, there he is, Titus Oakes, um, who's um, of being one of the conspirators of the Popish plot. Oakes accused him of being offered the being offered the bishopric of Ely by the Pope. It was true. I'd say that there's lots of stuff, but I've looked it up. It was true. There, there is information that he was offered that, and there are a number of other people in this country that were offered those things. And Titus, um, uh, Titus Oakes actually was seen as a great perjurer, and indeed he did perjure. He, he did do this on, on great deal of occasions, and he was seen as uh, England's greatest perjurer. Actually, what a, what a thing to be known for. So there he is, if you ever know that, Titus Oak is England's greatest, quite amazing, even nowadays he's seen as, as, as quite a perjurer. Um, but he was true, it was right what he said. It was actually right. This had happened, um, Vincent Torre had been offered the bishopric of Ely, um, and as, a, when, as soon as that was said, as, well, I think this is quite clear, isn't it? If you are guilty, what do you do? You scarper. You do, don't you? Don't wait for that. Say, no, I'm innocent. He didn't. He went to Belgium, went straight to Belgium, and retreated to Belgium where um, he was before. Um, now, this is just a little bit of uh, interesting thing that I found in, in some documents at the, uh, in 
in, uh, in Berkshire. Um, the companion he took with him to Rome was a master of disguise. And this may well have enhanced Vincent Torres' awareness of the importance of using dissemblement for the purposes of self-protection. As Palmer suggests, he had along with him Brother Francis Hayes, an Englishman, who shortly before had received the lay brother's habit in the convent. This Hayes was clever in several languages and was for some years with the English Franciscans at Douai as a steward or procurator. In times of war, he dressed like a hermit and cultivated his beard for more convenient discharging his office in disguise. There was also one other thing that I mentioned very briefly, which is that there's a, a, a document that was managed to just uh, bump into, published in, in, in 1671, um, which is the first version of the other text which was published, um, which is the uh, Compendium Vita Virtuti Miraculorum Nec Non Actuorum in Causa Beatificationis. Um, and what it does suggest is it's written by an author, Cardinal Azulinum, who refers to the Pope's desire to use Ross's canonization as a means of creating a bridge with Great Britain via the Queen. And the Pope was Clement IX, and the Queen of Great Britain at that time was Catherine of Braganza, which suggests, although this is known, this is known, this is nothing new, uh, but it just makes it very clear what they were trying to do with Santa Rosa. Um, it's not just making saints, it's using saints as... Uh, as, as, as part of a card game in which you try to get rid of Protestantism um, in this country. Um, they suggest that the Holy See had seen, used the thought of Rosa's canonization as a vehicle of rapprochement with the Great Britain, hence the biography written by an English Dominican, which they were very keen to mention, though not given his name in order to protect his identity, but it was snuffed out by the discovery of the Popish plot. So just a few things and then to, to finish up. The activity of translation is always part of a broader cultural activity of transposition, readjustment and recreation. The transmutum thereby created is subject to a variety of editorial shaping activities which blend into decision-making activities which are predicated on political, cultural and in this case religious ideological criteria. As we've seen, they may involve the excision of material which is seen as irrelevant to the needs of the document's audience, as when testimonies by Gaspar Flores Luisa Melgarejo and Giuseppe de Guzman were removed from the beatification processes or involved the addition of explanatory text designed to justify the inclusion of extra materials as occurred when the procurator explained where Rosser's first biography came from. Or indeed, the translation may become part of the weaponry of the hide-and-seek warfare which Catholics and Protestants were engaged in during the 17th century when the Vincent Torres um, cocked a snoop at the English crown by adopting a very German sounding pseudonym. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, for a uh, very colorful and uh, compelling investigation and um, look at translation in, um, in this particular context. Um, I think you've covered many things. I'm sure that everyone has questions. Um, I just wanted to, uh, to point out um, that it's, I think it really works as a great illustration of um, translation as involving a form of manipulation. I think the first part of the, uh, of the presentation really pointed out Uh, we have uh, 10 questions, so uh, if 
anyone wants to uh, those parts that, that are missing in the translation then, what what is the why do you think that they were missed? Why did why do you think you decided not to? The the, the three day positions. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And um, I think well, I think the first I think basically Luisa uh, Melgarejo, they wanted to excite Sefimberto because of the other brothers. And uh, the, the, the reason why they would have done that, I think on the, on the first one, would be that they would be trying to protect Santa Rosa from any whiff of heresy. So that that would be one reason they would do that. And, and Giuseppe de Guzman would be the same, the same sort of reason. So I think that um, in that particular case, you could look at it as, well, you know, I don't know, what do you think? Spanish Inquisition, could they be vindictive, perhaps? Um, there could be vindictiveness. Um, there could be a political vindictiveness against uh, uh, Luisa Margarejo. The other, um, other part of this role, which I don't necessarily think is, is a predominant thing, but there's also the possibility as well as there was, a, there, there was not only a struggle between different, like the Dominicans and the Jesuits, they were at each other's throats. Others. They wanted uh, Santa Rosa, they wanted the first thing, and they were doing each other down quite a lot in the depositions in a very clever way, but you could see that what, what, what's going on uh, with regard to that. And indeed in the letters that they wrote uh, to the Pope and, and, and to the King, etc. All those things were going on. They were vying for support from the King, because the King could, just with a letter, allow one of the orders to go forward and the others just to kind of disappear because they, they wouldn't have that support. So I think that it needs to be seen in, in those terms as well as a kind of a, um, a quite a difficult political machinations that were, that were, were, were actually at the back of that. It, there might be a gender thing as well. Um, in other words, the, it's quite clear that the people who were those who pushed Santa Rosa's uh, beatification the church was overwhelmed by what happened. But the people who were pushing this early on were women, and they were slaves, black slaves, and they were Indians. But the people who were pushing this right at the beginning, now after, as well as this inner, this inner circle, this inner circle of people that Rosa met with frequently, um, we don't know precisely what happened in that, but the, it, it was something has written a very good article on this. But it, 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 it's, it appears as well that there was some friction between them and the established clergy. <coughs> and that friction uh, is something that then, I think, led to some of these decisions. So one of it really was ownership rather than because they would have supported her beatification. It's yeah. just the way they were doing it. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's intriguing. I, I suppose that the way I looked at this, I thought I was quite surprised by it because I thought that it, it they kind of took that, that very strong uh, statement by Louisa Melgarico, which is very strong in terms of her... Um, uh, it, it, it's one of the statements which says that she believed that she was a saint many years before she died. And it's one of the only, only ones that says that. A few of them say the last year or so they start mentioning things, but hers is very early, it's the earliest um, that says that. So that's taken out. So I thought, well, that's like... You know, uh, cut off your nose to spite your face. Why did they do that? But then I realised politics is much stronger than that. The politics and that was good, that was uh, you know uh, evolving around this because there's ways of looking at how other, how well how well other people do and how they can be used. But there is also manipulation. This is a This is a case of manipulation.
sense that uh, six out of the eight were actually uh, trialled by the Inquisition, and they're Inquisition documents are in legal, and um, they, 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 they ask the same questions, and as I mentioned before, some of them punish people, some of them get let off. But I think it's basically that those points, I think it's to do with a political struggle between um, uh, sections of the population. In, in Spain, as much as in uh, the colonies at that point in time, we were exploring mysticism, we were exploring uh, emotions, uh, we were uh, uh, exploring visions, we were exploring art as well. There, there, there's, there's evidence of Santa Rosa and um, her inner circle, experience <coughs> in ecstasy in front of paintings. I'm interested in that as well because there are some references to that because that shows that the, the, the art is kind of um, involved in these imaginations. But I think it was that basic point when they said that they, um, at certain points, felt that they could not see, that was the point at which the, the Inquisition closed down. That, that was it. it was not, in fact, they didn't really, there, there were lots of other things they didn't mind about, but that was something that, that, that the, 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 uh, uh, the alarm bells rang for them. And because it meant they didn't, that the individual did not need the sacraments of the church. Once you are without sin, you do not need the sacraments of You do not need. Um, did you not meet them? Um, sorry, just to answer the second question related. Yeah. Um, it was just that I was reading that the actual um, kind of the spirituality of one um, is experienced by various levels quite similar. So as far as distinguishing why Rosa was beatified over maybe some of the other respects, yeah. it's like when they're experiencing quite similar experiences. Iwasaki has got a very good article on that. He raises that very question, and it's a very good question. And the interesting thing that most um, critics have talked about this, and I think I, I would generally agree with what they're saying, is actually she was pretty lucky that she went through because there were a number of reasons why that could have been stopped at that point in time. Because she was associated with Luisa Margareco, and Luisa Margareco, in between the uh, beatification and canonization should occur 50 years later. And they had to, had to wait for 50 years before this could happen. She was unlucky because there was a bull, a paper bull that, that was actually released, published two years, so two months after her documents arrived. They said, no, sorry, I have to wait 50 years. Never mind, 50 years. So that was something that held her back. So I think that as a result of that, plus also the taint with regard to Luisa van der Echel, that would be enough to stop it, but it didn't. And these documents, I think, are very clear. And also the fact that she was interviewed by the Inquisition, and they did say afterwards that her views were, um, in their view, orthodox. As far as I know, the beatification wasn't dependent simply on visions or experiences of the virtuous life of the individual. It also required miracles. Yeah. She had 119. And uh, the 119, the Vatican accepted four. Okay. Accepted four. Um, the, 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 the process um, of looking at the, uh, uh, the miracles, it needs to be studied more. It's a very interesting process. There's one miracle that I think is an incredible miracle, and I really like this miracle, and in fact so did um, Gonzalez Acuna, who wrote this, uh, sent this miracle to the Pope, as it were, in his description, which was sent in 1665, and there's the Reasuntio which happened when the case was reopened. And the first miracle he said was as follows. 
that Angelino, uh, there was a painting by Angelino Medoro, this was in April and the year before she died, and Santa Rosa went into the oratory and then she began, she was heard to shout in a loud voice at someone in the room. They thought someone was in the room. They looked in the room, there was no one in the oratory, um, but they saw that she had put um, a painting of um, Christ actually on the altar. They did much more of that. And then they went out, and then the daughter, called Andrea uh, de la Massa, who was nine years old at the time, went into the oratory and then said to her mum, look, look, look what's happened to the painting. They went in and looked at the painting, and then the painting was sweating. Now, I didn't quite know how it was sweating. Um, I can uh, just tell you what it says. Uh, that there was there was sweat which was coming from the brow of the uh, of the image, and Gonzalo de la Massa came in. Uh, the head of the Jesuits came in. The painter came in. Uh, the doctor came in. Everyone came in, and they even took uh, had a look at each one and had a taste of it. Um, and they, they said it was a miracle. That went to the Vatican. No, they said it was too. It was. It, it put the, the, there was another problem which hasn't been talked about. When miracles are presented to the old, old, the 17th century, when they were presented, they also had to have um, uh, a, a, um, a counter-defense. The defense of it being a miracle and a counter-defense. Which normally, normally said something like, well, it could have been condensation. Uh, you know, it, it may well have been, you know, it, it might, might have been a bit uh, sort of uh, cold maybe even or something like that. So it could have been condensation. But because there were six people who independently said, then we believe it's a miracle. It didn't really do that. And one of the reasons why it didn't do that is because uh, this was a transitional, uh, a transitional period whereby the Vatican was just, as it were, tightening up its, its performance in those terms and it was not allowing um, countries or towns to declare their own saints. So um, uh, you're exactly right. Uh, there was a long process, and it's actually um, about a thousand, a thousand pages long of all the different documents, which are about the different miracles. But there were 119 that were presented, um, and, that, and then they, they uh, threw that out and said that no one had that many miracles, it's ridiculous, you've got to reduce it. They took it down to 21, and, they, and of those 21, they said that four were. And the interesting thing is that four that they took and said that they were irrefrangibly true, um, and, that, and that was published in 1668, which then led to the canonization. Those were all physical healing, which, is, which, is, which I think is quite interesting. In other words, that's what they wanted. They wanted physical healing. Yes, sir. I'm not going to surprise that the miracle that you mentioned got as far as... Uh, right. Because it's, it's, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. the Council of Trent stipulated that miracles uh, could only be taken seriously if they were of the kind consistent with what happened in the, uh, in the New Testament. So things like healings would be okay, but the certainty would help you to take Yeah. It's the truth is because now, that's right, and really, um, in some ways, okay, you could say Gonzalez Acuna, um, who was the Archbishop who wanted to present the case later on, was a bit of a twit. You know, he should have realized that you don't do this. He should have been more aware of 
of the way the Vatican worked. And she read the decree to the She had read the rules, possibly, read the rules, she should have read the rules. I mean, I, I must admit, I quite like that miracle, just because it reminds me of Garcia Marquez. <laughs> I think it's rather nice. But, but it's really, it, it, it was thrown out, that was thrown out. So you, you're, you're exactly right. Those were the ones that, uh, that they decided to, 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 uh, to go forward with. Just um, is there any one very last and short question, perhaps, and then we can continue, well, we'll wrap up, and then we'll continue uh, outside with my formal uh, questions and discussions, if you like. Well, very much the chat uh, is the translation into Latin is an intrinsic component of the process of spiritual elevation. And I expect the quote, I want to listen to yours or anything. I I think, I mean, uh, uh, Professor Herman said, and he may, he may, I've talked to him about this, and he may well say this, what you're saying is not succeed. Well, he might not, but I think it, what I'm trying to do is I'm distil- it's a distillation of what a number of people have been talking about in terms of the translation in, into Latin. It's, um, in, in this particular case, I think that the, uh, it, it is definitely um, part of the process. In other words, there is an inner chamber uh, which, which, which happens in all of these, um, in the process, of, it's the process itself. Uh, which also leads to um, uh, a more elegant uh, narrativization of, of the events, um, which also um, is in Latin, and I, just because it's, it's inevitably associated with, um, with the language of the church, and also because of some, um, uh, some thinkers who saw that, that Latin was, was actually the language of God, and would say it in those terms. And so I think that and for all those other reasons, I think I can uh, feel pretty safe in more or less saying what I've said in that third. Is your third? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's such a very good point to, um, to end this session and in fact this, this, this season. So, um, Stephen, thank you very much for uh, uh, closing our whole year of uh, lectures, really, and in a way bringing us back to where we started in October when we were actually discussing Elizabethan Neo-Latin, and we, we've come back to look at Latin again this evening. Uh, but I also think that um, your illustration, not only is it showing the excitement of research and the sort of detective story, uh, not, not to mention because it's to Rome and Geneva, but that uh, academia involves, but also um, that the, the sort of trajectory that translation takes in a, in a physical and a literary way, and the very many uh, tensions and complexities that affect that, that, that journey that a translation goes on, you know, the religious um, aspects, the, the, the uh, political aspects, the, the editorial issues, and we're still thinking, um, my students and I are still thinking about all of these things in relation to modern texts. So thank you very much for this contribution to the translation of this new series. Uh, thank you to everybody who's come. I want to especially say thank you to, um, to Sylvia, who's uh, co-convened and there's quite a lot of work behind the scenes, and also to the MA students of the Translation Studies module, who have done an awful lot to help us and give us lots of support as well over the, the year. And this is the end of our second series, and we're very much hoping that the unexpected, there will be a third series next year, so I hope you will all come next year, and we'll see you again. So, Let's go and have some drinks. Thank you. Oh,